Well, I really did enjoy the first installment of the question and answer. My wife will tell you I was quite nervous just because, you know, I know none of you would play, you know, gotcha. But, uh, you know, and it was kind of funny. I don't remember whose question it was, but it was something about Adam. And I thought, this is a perfect, did Adam have a navel joke? <laughs> which for a lot of people is, uh, you know, the reason why they don't believe the gospel, which is just so silly. Yeah, people will use whatever they can to uh, stay away from the truth. But anyway, I thought it went really well. Got a lot of people sending in questions live. Um, so that's something we need to consider. Um, I'm not going to have a meeting right now here with Trent, but that would be a good thing to write down. <laughs> Trent and I meet quite a bit. Uh, we, we chat about things. But tonight, and probably next Wednesday night, I want to go over the Confession of Faith with you. We may finish it this evening. Uh, since we didn't spend that much time in prayer, we might, but we might not. We're going to go to 2 Timothy 2.15 because that's where the first one is. But we're going to chat just for a little bit about, you know, what is a confession of faith? When I first came here to Calvary, this was something that was weird to me, and I'm not saying it's still weird now, but it may be different for a lot of people. Unless you are from a Catholic background, public confessions of faith are not normal. And when you do see them, they're typically made by an individual, and it's like a statement of faith publicly to be read aloud, this is what we believe. Uh, you may have heard something like the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, and it's very Catholic in nature. Re the Reformation has their confession of faith, faith. It's called the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's 152 pages long. Can you imagine if we had a Calvary Community Church confession of faith that was 153 pages long? I, I, I can't imagine. But of course, that's not the intended person. Uh, uh, that's not the intended purpose of the Westminster Confession of Faith. That's really the. That's to outline everything about the Reformation. You have to understand the 1500s when the Reformation was happening, there was a major change from the time of the day, which was the Catholic Church. It had become kind of owned by the state. It was a puppet, so to speak. Now none of this was out there in the open, but people were starting to see money was at the root of the Catholic Church at that time. And so a lot of the reformers, they were so against the doctrines that were being taught from the, uh, the Catholic interpretation of the Bible that they reformed Christian doctrine. And in the 1600s is, is when the first Westminster confession, uh, confession happened you have things like the Synod of Dort, some other things like that too. Even the Council of Trent, some other stuff. You can ask Trent about that council. <laughs> that was way before his time. But uh, they all were trying to clarify, this is what we believe. Now, I was not here when the Confession of Faith for Calvary Community Church was drafted. I, so I don't know the exact purpose of it. Maybe some of you do know that. Maybe you were here when Dr. Lindstrom or the elders or, or whoever instituted that. But you can tell by a basic reading, these are supposed to communicate some basic fundamental Bible doctrines, and we'll look at that in a minute. But I want you to think of a confession of faith as an auditory statement of faith. You can go to anybody's ministry today, even the guys who are totally frauds, like Kenneth Copeland and you know, Jesse Duplantis and all, that, all those kind of guys. You can go to their websites and read a statement of faith, and you're going to see a lot of Control C, Control V. My computer nerds know what that is. And that just means copy, paste. You could probably find a, a, a guy who's like a heretic that has almost an identical statement of faith to someone who's clear. When you go to Calvary Community Church 
um, when you go to calvarytampa.org and you look at the statement of faith, we have a ton of different points that we've all laid out very detailed and we've put scripture references. And there's a lot of similarity, but there's a lot more detail there. A confession of faith is, it's brief. It's not supposed to be very long. It's supposed to be something that is said in a liturgical service where it's just kind of like repeated for the sake of being repeated. We do it here at Calvary because the doctrines that are shown in it, we believe are very important. But when you study the history of confessions of faith, you have to understand some things about them. First of all, they're not mandatory for the New Testament church. There is no instruction in the New Testament as far as how we're supposed to run churches where there must be a confession of faith. But we are supposed to be clear. We're supposed to use great plainness of speech. We're not supposed to turn the church into a lecture hall. And what, what I mean by that is we're not supposed to become so removed from the lost man that we'll never be able to get back to them again. And that, a lot of churches are doing that today. They, all this stuff that social media has brought on has caused churches to turn away from the lost person and try to just expose error. And there's some good in the exposing of error, but folks, what's the purpose of exposing the error? You show it so that if a lost man finds it, he can discern the truth. If you're only exposing the error, that's it. You leave the lost man out. They're still dying outside the church every day. We've got to be focused on people who have yet to come to faith in Christ. And how can we be used by God to do that? Confession, is, it's not mandatory. A confession of faith is not mandatory. It's not seen in a New Testament church. I think the closest thing we could see to a confession of faith is in Acts chapter 15. And it's when there's the council of Jerusalem, first council of the early church. And if anybody recalls, the main issue there was, is the Gentile saved by faith in Jesus Christ or by their faith plus a ceremonial circumcision for the males and then an uh, acceptance of the Mosaic law. And that was the main discussion. And Paul and Barnabas heard some things. They were really upset about it. They called this council together. And the decision was, said by James, who was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, no, a man is saved by faith alone in Christ alone. We should not burden them with these things of the law. That's a clear statement of faith that then was broadcasted throughout the land. And you realize how pervasive that was because Paul wrote the book of Galatians to address the exact issue. That was the exact issue that was coming into Galatia. Are you now, did, did you begin in the spirit? You're going to be completed by the flesh. Meaning you got saved when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that his blood was put to your account. Are you now going to be perfected in that walk by doing things of the flesh? circumcision, dietary laws, the observance of, of, of holy days and all that, is that what's going to cause you to grow spiritually? Those things didn't even birth you spiritually. And the focus goes back on who? Christ. I was just teaching this today in Life of Christ, which I'm, I'm just enjoying so much. I love that class. I, it's a shameless plug. When that class goes up, which that's what we're doing this semester, we're going to put that online. Take it. It is so good. Not because of the way that I teach, but just the material and, and, and analysis of difficult things that Jesus says. But anyway, we were talking about the Sabbath day, and we are talking about some things that Jesus did on a Sabbath day, and we are looking at how the Pharisees had changed what the law said and how there was an example of David doing something on the Sabbath day that was not found unlawful. And Jesus makes a comparison. 
One of the things that in, in that lecture we talked about was for the believer, the growth for the believer is not the doing of things and the obedience of things for the sake of obedience. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not just checking a box to check the box. The whole point of your Christian growth is you need to be connected to the vine. I want you to think about this for a moment. Just think of a, let's look at a treadmill, for example. You, you got this intricate, detailed piece of equipment and you, you, you got it sitting there in your house, you have a power cord, and you have an outlet going into the wall. You can spend thousands of dollars on this piece of equipment, but the $15 cable is what makes it work. Okay, you, you, you get the cable, you put it into the treadmill, you put the other side right next to the outlet, but you don't plug it in, you just rest it there. I mean, you're close, but you still don't have a treadmill that works as it was designed to work. It's not until you connect it to the power that all of a sudden that treadmill can give you all the benefits as you use it. This is an exact illustration that we can apply to John chapter 15. Abide in me and I in you. Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. The, the gardener, so to speak, the scripture says the husbandman is God the Father. You want to see growth in your life. It's not about doing things. It's about staying connected to Jesus. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. And you may say, well, how do I do that? Well, you've got to study your Bible. What does the Bible say about him? What does he about, uh, say about himself? And then you get into books like 1 John and you realize love. You want to be a, a, a soul winner that lasts? Love people outside of yourself. Humility, all those different things. You have to be careful when you have somebody come up to you and say, I do this, I do that, I, main, I stay away from this, I maintain that, I, 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 I. That person most likely will take themselves and their standard and press it upon you and say, if you want to be spiritual, do these exact things. Who does that make you uh, responsible to? To that person. But the Bible says very clearly that we're supposed to be connected to the vine. And anything that comes from our life as a result of being connected to the vine is because we're connected to the vine, not because of some greatness within ourselves. This is why humility is something that is so important to get a grasp of. But when you depart from that and you get puffed up with knowledge, which is exactly what the Scripture says knowledge does. Have you ever run into somebody that probably just knows too much for their own good? Or they know a lot of things, but they don't know how to put it into practice. You can know. You, you, can, you can take a course down at Irwin Tech off of Hillsborough Avenue. You can take a course for six months and learn how to become an IT certified help desk uh, employee. You could do it. Your starting pay probably somewhere around $95,000. But if you don't ever take what you learn and put it on to actual computers and learn how to do it hands-on, all you have is things up here. That's not going to help anybody. It certainly doesn't help you. It's not until you actually get the things from here to here and then actually put them in the real world, meaning there's action behind it that you start to see change. This is walking in the Spirit. James says a person who looks at the law, or excuse me, looks at the royal law of Christ and doesn't do anything with it is like a man who looks in a mirror, sees the problems, and goes away from the mirror without ever making changes. That man, he's going to have, all he's going to have is the knowledge of his error. But the one who's going to be blessed in his work indeed is the one who what? Is not just a forgetful hearer, but a faithful doer. Oh. So if you understand that, 
You understand how important something like a confession of faith may be. These are not just things that we mindlessly repeat because it's Sunday morning at 10.30 and that's what we do. This is what the Catholic Church has become. I've often, just recently, I've been involved in driving down Hillsborough here and passing by Incarnation. And I've thought so many times, but I, every time I look at the clock, it's not time for Mass. But I've thought so many times just, just to go in and experience what is it about this structure, about this form, that is attractive to people. And I automatically know what it is. It's just doing stuff. And, 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 and it's not even that you know what you're doing, but the fact that like you're here today. I can tell you how many times when I was in the 13th grade, and you may say, what is that? It was just community college at the time. And that's not a knock on community college, but I'm just saying, that's how I felt. I, I can't tell you how many times my professor never checked if I had my textbook. They never checked if I was paying attention in class. As a matter of fact, I could, I could put my head down and wouldn't care because that professor's job was to just make sure that I was hearing information. That's it. I mean, that, when you go to community college, or any college for that matter, you got to take your education into your own hands. You know, high school is something different. They're trying to get you to succeed. But the Bible is not just something that we should hear, and then there's nothing that we do with it. A church service should not just be something we go to and hear the same old thing, but there's nothing that actually changes in our lives. What is the fruit in your life? It's not evidence of your salvation. It's evidence of your faithfulness to the Lord. And you should have fruit. The Bible says in John 15, if you don't have fruit, you get tossed aside. You're unprofitable. You can't be used. Do you want to be that kind of branch connected to the vine? Well, if you do, just you know, keep doing nothing. And you, <laughs> that's exactly what you'll get. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verses 5 through 8, we talked about this on, on Sunday night, chatted about it a little bit in the recording we just did on, on mental health for Bible line. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-8 through 8 says, you got to add to your faith, and in these things you won't be barren and unfruitful. And then verse 9 says, but the one who lacks these things is blind, cannot see afar off, and forgets that he's purged from his old sins. And how many people have you heard of, or maybe you know, that have fallen into sin, just the idleness of their faith, and years later they come to even question if they are saved? You know, that's not a byproduct of walking with the Lord. That's a byproduct of fulfilling the lust of the flesh. It doesn't have to be super bad things, but still, nothing is, is, is an evidence of something that you're not obedient. You're not walking with the Lord. You're not walking in your new nature. So when we think of confessions of faith, you are, you're, if you go to a Catholic church, uh, you, you'll see what this is. There's a lot of repetition. There's chanting. There's holy books. There's holy processes and all that. That is not what this confession of faith is. I think this was made actually to kind of combat that. It's like we're going to say things that actually have biblical definition behind them. They're useful because they're, they're pretty brief, they're simple, and they have a demonstration of scriptural support. A person can quickly ascertain what a religious group believes and gain knowledge should they pursue more clarity in the form of asking questions. So we're going to review, just for a moment here, I'm going to go through all of the verses, and I'm going to tell you what Bible doctrines they teach. All right, so you might just want to write this down. In 2 Timothy 2.15, we are emphasizing the divine inspiration of Scripture. 2 Timothy 2.15 emphasizes the divine inspiration of Scripture. John 1.14 
is an emphasis on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We'll look at the verses in a minute, but I want to go through this list with you so you have it written down. John 1, 14, emphasis is on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, the emphasis is on the sacrificial death of Christ. You could use propitiational, but I tried to spell it three times and word marked me down three times, so I just spelled a word I knew. Amen? The sacrificial death of Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Hebrews 9.22 is an emphasis on the blood atonement. We just talked about this in Life of Christ today, how Leviticus 16 talks about the day of atonement, how much blood is involved in that, the particular sacrifices. One for the, there were three. One for the nation, one for the temple, and one for who? The high priest himself. Why? Because the high priest has sin. But all of it required the shedding of blood. And Hebrews 9.22 reiterates what is already taught in the Old Testament. Galatians 3.26 teaches, or excuse me, emphasizes the doctrine of adoption of believers. Galatians 3.26, the emphasis on, is on the adoption of believers. The next one here includes Ephesians 2.8 and 9, and the second to last one, Romans 1.16. This is just an emphasis on soteriology. I'll tell you how to spell that. It's a fancy word for the doctrine of salvation. Soteriology, S-O-T-E-R-I-O-L-O-G-Y. Soteriology. The doctrine of salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Romans 1, 16. 1 John 5, 13 is an emphasis on eternal security of the believer. It's been said, and for some reason it's a controversy, that the doctrine of eternal security is a part of soteriology. I completely agree with that. I mean, the, the, the joy of salvation is knowing it is eternal. Hello. <laughs> Otherwise, you're signing up for a lifelong commitment of no sin, and you couldn't do that to even come into it. It's not a separate doctrine, but it's emphasized now. And, and you, wanna, you ask why. There's Armenian theology out there that thinks because of the freeness of the believer to trust on Christ, his freeness does not change to come out of his salvation. And there's some clear verses against that. But 1 John 5.13 is an emphasis on eternal security. Three more here. 1 John 2.1, one of my favorites. This teaches an emphasis on the advocacy of Jesus for the believer. The, advo the advocacy of Jesus for the believer. That's 1 John 2.1. John 4.35 speaks to evangelism. And specifically, the urgency of evangelism. And we'll see that when we get to that verse. You'll, you'll see that. We skipped Romans 1.16 because we actually included it with Ephesians 2.8 and 9. That one's on soteriology. And then the last one is the rapture of the church. 
in Titus 2.13. Now, I don't have it up here on the screen, but if you have a red hymnal, you can open it up, and you'll see on the inside cover there, you have the whole statement of faith. I would take a picture of that. I'd memorize those verses and those descriptions that I gave you. The reason why these are something that we say every morning is because we are to be reminded of these essentials of the faith. There's a lot more that we could put on there. I guarantee you, if I had a board meeting, we would be there for a long, long, long time thinking what to add. And, and, and that's not the point of a confession of faith. That's usually like a statement of faith. We believe all these different things. I encourage you to go to calvarytampa.org and look up our statement of faith. It's got some good stuff. It's got some really good stuff, and it explains a lot of things there. It's not, a, it's not something that you put in to say, we don't believe this, we deny this, blah, 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 because that can become, if you're going to deny something, you have to understand what that person is saying in context. And it's my experience, most of the time people are taken outside of context for the sake of just making a clip of something. But it's really to affirm what we do believe. So let's look at the first one together. The divine inspiration of Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. This is an emphasis... Oh, I'm sorry, it's not 2 Timothy 2.15. <laughs> it's 2 Timothy 3.16. My apologies. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Well, you may say, well, why don't we say all of it? You know, it's, it says all of it. Do you not believe in the rest of it? Can I tell you that is silly argumentation? Like, please don't think because we choose to be brief in the confession of faith that, well, they don't believe it's good for doctrine and reproof. I'm telling you, that kind of thought process will not get you far. As far as like edifying the body of Christ, I've had people email us before and say, why don't you read all of 1 Corinthians 15? Well, sure, we'll read 59 verses as a statement that we believe in. Just, you know, be careful with that stuff. The, the focus of what we're talking about here is the inspiration of Scripture. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. This is to say that we believe that all of the words in this book are given from God. So when we read this book, we are not reading it on the authority of a man who is an author or a translation. We're reading it on the authority of this is God's word, period. Second one, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. John 1.14 John chapter, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. Now we say we believe the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The entire verse has more to that, but I want you to see it. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's what we repeat. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. That's a significant title here that John is saying right in the beginning. I want you to know the one we're talking about is the Son of God, Israel, that you have rejected. And remember, when John's writing these things, <laughs> uh, Jesus has not been suddenly well accepted, but he's making it very clear, full of, you should mark this just for your own reference here, grace and truth. He's not full of the law. Those of you who may have watched, 
I think it was a trailer for that very popular series called The Chosen. They had a kind of a, you know, flashy, cinematic, boom, 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 you know, type trailer. Like it really got, if you're watching it, like, wow, this looks good. But they made Jesus, the, the guy who played Jesus, they, they made him say something about something, something, and Jesus said, I am the law. Meh. That's a, that's a major red flag. And if you look at that red flag, you unroll it. You know what it says? Mormonism. <laughs> because that's what the Mormon doctrine teaches. But specifically here, he's full of grace and truth. And if you look in verse 17, but the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by who? Hmm. I know you may say it's just entertainment. There's nothing harmless in it. But when it's like that, you're like, I don't know. You know, do what you will with it. But I'm just saying, <laughs> that smells weird. But the truth of this verse here is that the word, which we have reference from, it's spoken in the first four verses of the, of the uh, chapter. That word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The fact that there's a description that the only begotten Son or the only begotten of the Father, that word is, has now been assigned. This is Jesus. And we believe that. 1 Corinthians 15.3, let's go there. And we'll look at maybe this one and one more. I have all these little pieces of paper in my Bible because the printer's been acting up. I think the printer doesn't like me because every time I go in there, it goes into rest mode. The other day, I literally walked in there and I saw it go into rest mode and I was like, you know, what's going on there? <clears throat> uh, 1 Corinthians 15.3, we repeat the last part of it. Paul says here, for I have delivered unto you first of all that which I had also received. This is significant Paul explains in Galatians chapter 1 how he received his gospel. He received it from Jesus Christ. He makes, a very, he makes it very clear. It's not from the apostles. It's not from the doctrine or teachings of man. I heard it from Jesus, period. So when you read this and you compare it with the divine inspiration of Scripture, Paul's not making something up. This is what God wants us to know. The good news of salvation is how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That is building off of prophecy that was already established in the Old Testament. Because the Scriptures that Paul had at the time were what? All Old Testament. Not including Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matter of fact, uh, um, Corinthians, written around like AD 59, and most of the Gospels had been circulating at that point, but they weren't like publicly published, like you could go down to the library and, and get one. So these references are to the Old Testament Scripture as the Scripture is prophesied. And then verse 4 is key to it as well. The reason why we don't repeat it is because we're repeating a certain doctrine here that what Christ did on the cross was to die for sin. The emphasis is on the sacrificial death of Christ. But verse 4 also says, and that He was buried and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, just as the Scriptures prophesied that He would. The last one we'll look at is Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22. Hebrews is such a good book. 
You can read that with, uh, you know, and take some notes and you'd have quite a bit of notes and quite a bit of questions, to be honest with you. There, there's a lot of questions that come out of Hebrews, but there's good teaching there. And this part that we're getting into, how many of you guys, how many of you guys have made brownies before? Okay. Raise your hand if you like your brownies like gooey. Not super gooey, like, oh, this is not cooked, but like a little, you know, raise your hand. Raise your hand if you like them like cardboard, you know, like crumbly, real nice. Good, we've got all, oh no. I was going to say we have all sane people here tonight, but there's two we need to pray for. <laughs> Some of us like brownies, others like cardboard. Just kidding. Anyway, I compare this part of Hebrews to like that gooey center of the brownie, man. It's like so good, this part that we're getting into. So, We're not really doing it justice by just jumping into chapter 9 and verse 22, but there's some doctrine that's here that's very important. Look at what this says. Um, We're going to actually back up to 21. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of of the ministry, and almost all things are by the law, so by the requirements in the law, they're purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Now you may say, wait a second, where's the four sins part? Well, we added that because we want to add context when we read the confession of faith. But what is being said here is it's not necessarily talking about the ministry of Christ. It's talking about the requirement from God that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no forgiveness. Blood must be shed. This is talking about that idea of God that's very popular today, that he turns a blind eye to our sin. He says, oh, I'm, I'm, you're cool, I love you, let's just forget that. That is, an, that, that is a God who, who, that is a miscarriage of justice, by definition. If we saw that in a court of law today, where there was no jury, there was no prosecution, there was no defendant, none of that, and the, the state simply decided to overlook the charges, that's like not cleaning a wound that's infected. It may grow, skin may grow over it, but the infection will go down and eventually kill the body. Blood must be shed, period. And when we read that, it is a reminder that not only is there a requirement for a shedding of blood, but praise God, the requirement has been made and it has been met in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? That is a reminder. We hold on to that. All right, next week we'll look at the rest of those here. Now we can look at Galatians 3.26. Let's, let's do that. Galatians 3.26, the adoption of believers. I'm an adoptive father. This is one of those things I just can't wait when we're explaining to Remy, you know, her situation, how we can immediately compare it to ourselves. I, I'm very excited about that. And, you know, pray for us as we, you know, raise, raise our daughter and do all those things. We get to show these great things and love that God has for his children. But this says here, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Now, I kind of went back and forth, like, is this the doctrine of the body of the church, all that? But specifically, it says here that we are the children of God. We've been given a title now. We're born into the family. And that birth, that assignment, that now title change happened by what? Faith in Christ Jesus. There are so many people that want to attack this idea of you can't choose to believe. You can't, you, 
You, you, it's something has to happen to you in order for you to believe. You know what has to happen to you? You hear the bell. You hear the good news. And you believe. Amen? That's it. And that's how you get to become a child of God. I'll close with this before, we, before I share the gospel. Dr. Bob Gilbert, I've told you this story before, but he had a student come to the Tuesday night classes and Bob was teaching and he's doing a good job and he shares the gospel with this student. This is years and years and years ago. And the student wouldn't trust Christ. Not in a you know, defiant way, but he just he didn't raise his hand to trust Christ. That same student comes to a Sunday morning service, hears Dr. Lindstrom preach, and Dr. Lindstrom gives the gospel and he raises his hand as an indication, hey, raising my hand doesn't save me, but I'm trusting Christ. I, I, I understand now. And Dr. Gilbert went up and talked to this gentleman afterwards and he said, you know, you talked a lot about the sacrifice of Christ and all of that, but Dr. Lindstrom told me about coming into the family of God and having an assignment now. I, I, I'm, I'm a child of God. I, I'm somebody now. Not to say he denied those other facts, but it was that communication that brought him to a point of belief. And this is a good verse to constantly remind ourselves, you are not just a child of your family's last name. Okay, when you get to heaven, you'll have a new name, the Bible tells us. You are a child of God now. You pair this with other things like you're an ambassador. You got responsibility. You have great opportunity to live this life with a purpose. So many people are flailing and turning to all sorts of external things because they don't feel like they belong. You know how many people need to know that God loved them so much he sent his son to die for them and that they can, they can now have value. They already do have value, but they can now be born into this family by simple faith. Galatians 3.26 reminds us of that. All right, we can close our Bibles. So next week, Lord willing, if we're still here, maybe we're all in the air getting fitted for robes. Amen. I got to get my measurements for my cap and gown, you know. It's like, I can't wait until I have my new body. You know what I'm saying? I'll probably require a lot less tape measuring. <clears throat> I want to share with you how you can know for sure you're going to heaven. This hand is to represent you and me. This block of sin is exactly what it represents, our sin. Put it on top of my hand because the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God forever in a literal fire-burning hell. God, He loves us very much. He does love us, but this sin must be paid. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. A lot of people think they can do their own good works but their own good works, first of all, it's not a valid payment. Someone's got to die for it. And even if you could do good works to pay for it, you have to be sinless. You ha there, ha there has to be no sin ever lodged against you. It's not about paying it off. You have to be cleared. We all have a problem. This sin, it separates us from God. This hand represents Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, fully God and fully man. And what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary was he took that sin which separates us from God and he paid for it. He cried out, it is finished, and that sin was paid. He was buried and he rose again three days later to fulfill the prophecy according to the scriptures. And he says, all who simply by faith believe on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Salvation is not a bunch of do this, do that, do this. Salvation is done. You believe you receive the free gift of everlasting life. And I know it sounds basic, and I know we all know English, and we know 
verbs and nouns and stuff, but everlasting is not equal to probationary. It's not equal to temporary. Everlasting means everlasting. So you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt because you've put your trust in Jesus Christ that he paid for your sins. You're once saved, always saved. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the time that we've had tonight. Pray for those who may be on the internet who have just come to understand this message of salvation and they have believed on Jesus Christ, your Son. I pray for them that they would be strengthened and encouraged. I pray they'd let us know by just dropping a comment, leaving, leaving us a, a note there, or maybe sending us their email address. Lord, I, I pray for all the churches out there that they're kind of just playing a game. I pray, Lord, that they'd be convicted of the truth, that there'd be somebody loving to go reach them with that truth, and that they would align biblically. I pray for all those here tonight. We all have our own problems and difficulties, Lord, but none of those things are worthy to be compared to the joy that we're waiting to see. But we can understand that joy now by understanding who we are in you. We pray for your soon return. In the precious name of Jesus, I ask these things. Amen.